We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. As a Canadian, I would like to apologize for the very few who seem to be unable of truly apologizing for themselves without including everyone else. Oh, oh, Here's oh, oh. Thompson. Oh, man. See, even the kids know right from wrong. Even the kids know. What sort of example are we teaching the kids? You got to stand up and, uh, you know, uh, be accountable. Um, <clears throat> anyway, thank goodness we try to do that every day. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, what's going on today? Eh, nothing. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, just more of the same, really. Uh, just more of the same. And now there'll be another committee. We got, you know, uh, Parliament's figuring out if they should have another committee. Uh, another committee that, uh, once again, oversees government screw-ups. Uh, we need another committee to figure out how the heck a Nazi got in the gallery. Can we have a committee on that? Just like we're, uh, is David Johnston available? Do we have, is David Johnston in the house? Does he feel, has is, is, is he stopped bleeding and he, can he come and help us, uh, on this committee? How can many we get committees? Dave Woodard to help us? <laughs> Dave Woodard can help us with this, I think. Dave Woodard for senator. Uh, all right. So like, it's just, it, you know, I mean, how many? Everybody talks about how bad Harper was. Uh, he seemed to have a bit more control than what the prime minister does. How many scandals were in that government? I don't know. Um, so anyway, so uh, just like there, Bernardo, remember that when he got tra- is there a, is wasn't there a committee to study what, what happened with his release? Was that no? That didn't happen. Uh, and the public inquiry has that started? Oh yes, it is started. Uh, maybe we can get the public inquiry to you know as well as it's branching out on all these different things. Uh, it started with uh, Chinese Communist Party interference, but now it's. Uh, including everything from that to merry-go-rounds. Uh, why don't we include this? Why don't we, you know, uh, as well as how does the Chinese Communist Party interfere in Canadian elections twice? How does the Nazi get into the galley? gallery? Can we have that? Can we do that? There's this just ongoing, uh, it's the, we should rename the committee. It's a committee for JT screw-ups. All right, what are we studying this week? Is it India? No, no, no. It's not. That was last week. It's uh, Nazis in the gallery today. Man, oh, man. And just can't apologize. Apologizes on behalf of Canada, on behalf of pro- uh, whatever, and then just keeps pointing to the fine print that says, see, this isn't my job. What is the prime minister's job? Does anybody know what the prime minister's job is? Because it seems every time something hits the fan, it ain't his job. It's someone else's. It's David Johnston falling on the sword. It's Anthony Rota falling on the sword. It's Marco Mendicino falling on the fo- uh, on the sword. Like it's just it's it's one right after the other. We need we just should instead of it we should just have one committee that studies all of the government screw ups. Just put it all under one umbrella. We can sweep it under the rug under one umbrella. It'll all be great. Uh, uh, speaking of the speaker or the lack thereof, a secret ballot to elect the speaker will come up on Tuesday. Uh, what else we got? Uh, Ontario high school teachers have agreed to binding arbitration, which is amazing because when Stephen Lecce, education minister, said this several weeks ago, they're all, uh, 
Well, the, the leadership was upset, but it seems 78% of the, uh, of the rank and file members say, yeah, let's do that. And isn't it nice? We're not having to listen to any of this crap back and forth anymore. Just off to binding arbitration, they go, all right, let's move on. Just like it was Ford and GM. Loving it. All right. And Canada's lowest birth rate ever in 17 years, uh, right now, as our population hits 40 million, the largest single jump in immigration in one year. Or sorry, in one year, in 66 years, 1.1 million new Canadians this year, despite the lowest birth rate in 17 years. So uh, there you be, uh, 1.1 million new Canadians, topping out at 40 million, I believe, at about June of this year. All right, so uh, the whole thing continues with um, now, uh, I guess, as I mentioned at the top of the show, they're holding a, uh, they're, they're debating whether to have a committee to examine how Nazis get in the gallery. Um, uh, here's uh, what the Prime Minister said today, still getting hammered about this issue with what happened with President Zelensky from Ukraine in the House of Commons. And uh, many are asking if you've made a phone call, if you've reached out. And from what we understand, uh, the diplomatic channels are doing that, not the Prime Minister. Listen up. Obviously, uh, since uh, this terrible incident happened on Friday, uh, we have been <clears throat> in close con uh, connection uh, with uh, our Ukrainian uh, friends and counterparts. Uh, we've uh, expressed, obviously, uh, the extraordinary regret. If the Prime Minister has no blame in any of this, and it's all on the shoulders of the Speaker, why, hasn't, why did it take him three days to to address this, considering it's a worldwide event, an international news story. And yet he's letting Katrina Gould say, let's wipe it from the record. He's letting all of all of the MPs take the hit for three days, yet it doesn't involve him. Well, then why not just stand up and be a leader if there's nothing to be ashamed of? Why absent for three days if your hands are clean? None of this adds up. Demand for electricity across Canada is, is expected to double in the next 25 years. And it looks like nuclear energy going to be a big portion of that, as it already is. Uh, key factors, of course, driving up demand, uh, EVs, and uh, the push for industries to electrify. Let's bring in David Novog, professor in the Department of Engineering Physics and uh, at McMaster University, and with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on today. So how and why have attitudes towards nuclear energy changed? I remember back in the day when uh, Pickering was built, there was con uh, some concerns, and then it took off, and then sort of interest waned for a bit. And now oh, here we're talking about it quite a bit uh, all over again. I think the, the uh, you know, we went through a period of 10 or 20 years where things were pretty stagnant in, you know, energy demand in Ontario, and, and, and we seemed to have enough supply and enough demand, and everything was kind of balanced. But with all this decarbonization and, and movement away from fossil fuels, it's really forced, you know, uh, uh, everybody to reconsider what the energy sources need to be in the future. And, and nuclear already kind of quietly produces somewhere around 55% of the electricity in Ontario. And I think probably that fraction may stay the same, but we're just going to be producing a lot more electricity overall. And, and, and I think that's really what's driving change today. Very quietly, interesting way to put it, and obviously, therefore, doing its job quite successfully. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, back in in you know, we we were always just happy to to we sort of in the nuclear industry don't talk a lot about our successes. We're just there to produce electricity. But I guess what what's happened now is that governments everywhere are really concerned about what the future energy uh, mix needs to look like, and they need reliable electricity. You know, we don't want brownouts or blackouts. And we also want to attract new industry, like the you know these battery companies that are relocating to Canada. I, you know, from what I understand, a big part of their desire to locate here is that our electricity is really green. So if you're going to make batteries for electric cars, you better do it in a place that you know is already has a pretty green electricity grid. So what is different with nuclear energy today as opposed to back in the day when Pickering was being built? How is it, what's different in the industry? How is it more efficient? All of that. So I think, you know, there's been a lot of private, the original builds that were done back in the, you know, the 60s and 70s and and even 80s were done mostly through public endeavors, like through the former Ontario Hydro. And I think what we see today is a lot more private sector involvement in all aspects of the supply chain you know when i look in southern ontario through all of the the um, uh the companies that are located you know in 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 bwxt the the the, the former snc lavalin which has recently been renamed uh, there, there's so many companies in southern ontario who are engaged from the private sector that i think this is what really drives everything to be much more focused uh, that being said, is it too expensive? Is it? Uh, are we getting value for dollar here? Yeah, well, I think we, when we look at the lifetime performance of the reactors we have, uh, that, that for sure the, the business case is there. I, I think what the problem, I guess, with financing in nuclear is it relies on a very large upfront cost, and you sort of gain the benefits gradually over the lifetime of, of of a nuclear station. So that's really, I think, the sticker shock that people see when they when they read some of the headlines about the the you know the the capital cost of nuclear is 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 really what we should be looking at is what is the you know the lifetime benefit to to the people in Ontario in terms of the payback on that investment. And and I think all the business cases are really pointing strongly that nuclear. Nuclear is going to be competitive, and it will it will have the payback that that you know the province and the private sector are both looking for. Uh, some critics would say it's an overwhelming focus on nuclear, uh, and it's a high risk, and that that money should be spent on alternatives. Yeah, and I I, I guess I have some. Um, I, I like a diverse energy portfolio, and I think. Where where some wind, you know, in some parts of Ontario where we have long, you know, long-standing and, and well-defined wind patterns, installing as much wind capacity as we can is, is certainly, a, a, you know, should be one of our priorities as well. But when we look at the demand growth that we're having and also, you know, electrification in, in the automotive sector, we're going to need all the tools available, you know, large growth in nuclear plus large growth in, in other renewables. You bring up an interesting point, and and I think the one that isn't really talked about a lot, and that's we're going to need a mix. It's just because we have nuclear doesn't mean we can't use wind, solar, natural gas, what have you. Um, do you think that a lot of this debate is on the extremes, and and we're not realizing that it, we got to be prepared for everything? You talked about having a mixed portfolio here. 
Yeah, and, and you know, right now Ontario does have a, a pretty good mix of, of energy. And, and when we look at other low carbon areas, like you know France as an example, they also are striving to get to get a good mix. So, I think you know, in any large investment and in anything as important as the battle on climate change, we should we should have you know we should have a diverse portfolio of solutions. And and you know what the the really strong message that, that you know I'd like to put apart is all the growth in nuclear and in wind and in other areas. There, we're set for a massive boom in employment in, in southern Ontario. Like, you know, I wish I was young again and I could go back. Mm. I think the op- the opportunities for young people in, in skilled trades and, and, you know, engineering and science is really going to go and drive a lot of, a lot of renewal kind of in, in the Ontario yeah. employment workforce. Yeah, well said. David Nobog with us, Professor, Department of Engineering and Physics, McMaster University, as uh, Ontario looks to ramp up its uh, nuclear production of energy. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Uh, you be well as well. Residents of Hamilton Stony Creek Mountain remain concerned over the health impacts of a nearby landfill. It stinks up there uh, and has been for a while. Uh, near daily unbearable smells, uh, some say. Uh, the city said that uh, the, uh, it's met all the standards uh, as a result of the uh, or the standards set by the Ministry of the Environment. Uh, and really, uh, around that time, just days before, a public board member committee decided to pause plans for a new school in the neighborhood. Let's talk more with a resident who lives near the landfill, Kathleen. She is here now. Kathleen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for having me. So what does it smell like today, Kathleen? Um, it's actually not too bad today. I've been able to have my windows open for, you know, a few hours. Um, but the, the smell is mostly at night. So, you know, by 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, I'll make sure to close my windows so that uh, it doesn't hit too quickly. Why at night? Oh, I have no idea. They claim that they're not doing anything specific to cause that. Apparently, it's uh, to do with cooler air and the wind movement and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's it's mainly a night thing for at least for the people who are further away from the dump. The people who are closer to it, I'm sure they're experiencing it much much earlier in the day. So, uh, wh- where are where is everybody on this? Uh, where is the story? Is there is there changes? Is there explanations? Um, we were pretty in the dark about a lot of it. We did just have some air quality testing results come back. Um, so the testing was done by the Ministry of Environment and then assessed by Hamilton Public Health. Um, all of the results came back below problematic levels. Now, the problem that we're having with this is the way the testing was done. The testing was only done for two-minute samples um, instead of the 10 minutes called for by the ambient air quality criteria. Um, As well, it was taken during the day. And as I just said, Mm. the odors are mostly at night. So if they're taking it when it's not very odorous, they're not getting true samples. Uh, Um, Sorry, go ahead. I I was going to say that they've said that the most likely cause for the smell um, is hydrogen sulfide, which they have assured us has not uh, been known to be cancer-causing, which, you know, I guess is supposed to make us feel better. The problem is it does cause apnea, dizziness, headache, insomnia, upset stomach. Mm. Um, we have children complaining of migraines, children, five years old, complaining of migraines since this smell has started. And they're doing work to the landfill. That's why this is happening. Is that accurate? Um, So we've been told two different things. One is that, first of all, they're expanding. They were given the okay to double the size of this landfill. 
Um, and from what I understand, in order to do that, they've had to dig down pretty deep to, to create new cells, um, which in itself, I'm guessing, is causing a lot of the smell. Um, they're also saying that it's from the leachate runoff um, from the dump, which is kind of concerning because it's an industrial dump. I think that a lot of people don't understand this. This isn't a municipal household waste food kind of dump. It's uh, an industrial dump. It shouldn't be causing these kinds of smells. Um, one of the points I hear I have in front of me, uh, you're saying that there's a lot of misunderstandings, uh, misunderstanding from other areas of Hamilton about how severe the issue is and uh, how residents wound up living near the landfill. Did you want to address that? Um, yeah, I think it's important people understand, you know, I hear a lot of why would you move in next to a dump? Um, mm. and, and the first thing I want to point out is that the majority of the houses that are affected by this actually predate the dump. Um, all of the houses over by Paramount, you know, some of the older areas on the other side of Highland, not to mention Lower Stony Creek. Um, they're, they're getting hit with it down on Quigley and Green Hill, um, over by Battlefield. You know, these are all areas that well predate the dump. Um, so that's not really a fair thing to say to people. Uh, aside from that, the people who did buy brand new houses right close to the dump, first of all, they were told by their realtors that um, the dump was closing in 2019 which was supposed to be the situation until the province, from my understanding, expanded their contract by 10 years and doubling of, um, of the size. Um, so, you know, they, they were not under the impression that this was going to continue, not to mention, you know, I've been here for four and a half years and this hasn't been an issue. This mm. is just an issue as of this year. So, you know, not really a fair thing to say to these people. Yeah. So um, is have you been told, Kathleen, at all that this is going to be temporary while this expansion goes on or, or is this the future? Um, well, we've been told that it's going to be temporary, but nobody's giving us a timeline. So is temporary a week? Is it a month? Is it a year? Is our summer next year going to be ruined? Like this has this has done damage to our summers. Um, so so we really don't know what temporary actually means. Um, and, and one of the things that we are asking for is 24-hour air quality monitoring. I think that that's a very, a, a very fair thing to ask for, um, regardless of when the smell stops. You know, we'd like to know what it is that we're breathing in from that landfill. Yeah. Yeah, and as you said, it's an industrial landfill, so right. it's not like it's food compost and such, which, you know, I, I you know that, that, that changes everything. Yeah. Um, um, Talk about um, talk about for a sec how it has affected you uh, mentally, emotionally. I mean, you know, you can talk about the kids and the headaches or somebody saying it doesn't affect you. Uh, but obviously, if you're smelling something that is that horrid, uh, it, it affects your psyche. It, it has it has affected a lot. Um, first of all, we have to keep our windows closed um, often. Right. If I if I want to go out, I can't leave my windows open to air at my house because I don't know when the smell is going to start. We have to keep our, our houses closed up. We're running our air conditioners when we shouldn't. I should be able to go to sleep tonight with my window wide open, and I can't. I have to have my air conditioning running. Mm. Um, so financially, that's a problem. But mentally and, and, and psychologically, you know, if I'm going to go for a walk, half the time in the evening, I have to pack up and drive somewhere mm. so that I don't have to smell this, right? I can't just sit outside. We can't have people over in our backyards. People have had to cancel plans. Kids are out trying to play and, you know, swim in their backyard. They can't do that. Um, we've been very much held hostage in our homes 
And, and that just does a lot of damage on its own. You know, when we're talking about building more homes due to a housing shortage and places where to build them, it just seems odd that that's where a dump is, yeah. uh, especially around homes and such, whether it's it's zoned industrial or not. Um, so is there is it better in the winter than per summer? Do you know that yet? Uh, but we really don't know yet because this is the first, like we had some issues last year um, in the early spring there was a very similar smell. It was only a couple of times. Um, GFL said that they had taken a very odorous material and that they wouldn't take it ever again. Um, so we really don't know what's going to happen come the winter. According to uh, the Ministry of Environment, um, the, the reason the smell travels is actually more to do with the cold weather. So if this is going to continue, it's probably going to get worse in the winter if that's mm. what carries the smell is the cold air. That's bizarre. Um, mm-hmm. So how does how has this affected development of the neighborhood? We understand a school's been paused because of this. Uh, you said you've been there for a couple of years now. How has this affected development of the neighborhood? Um, I mean, in my particular area, it does not seem to be slowing anything down. Um, I, I heard that they were pausing the school, which I think is fantastic. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to take a risk with our children. Um, but other than that, I'm not seeing anything slowing down. Uh, so does it smell just as much to you today or recently as it has in the past, or is it getting better in any way? Anything? It's not getting better. In fact, not, the last yeah. week, it has been um, every single day. There was a point that I actually woke up in the middle of the night um, because I accidentally left my window open, and it had me gagging. And from mm-hmm. that point, it was 36 hours before the smell went away. Kathleen was uh, with us, resident who lives near uh, the landfill that is creating a, a terrible odor that has been affecting residents in the area, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to be showing any signs of slowing down at this point. Kathleen, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Keep us abreast of what's going on. Thank you so very much for having me. Uh, you may have a ticket for this. Uh, I think we did. We do. We don't now, sort of. Uh, Springsteen and the E Street Band canceling uh, the rest of their 2023 tours, uh, citing a doctor's advice. Uh, Bruce, of course, celebrating 74 years, uh, steadily recovering from a peptic ulcer disease, says the press release. And out of an abundance of caution, they're, sh- they're um, uh, uh, going to reschedule the remaining of the shows uh, this year. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator and here now eric thanks for the time hope you're well i'm better than bruce springsteen and i rarely get to say that you know you bring up a valid point here eric i mean the guy looks like he is the picture of health compared to some of the other rock and rollers out there uh how how concerned should we be over this um i well so far the doctor had said the there's one doctor that uh, seems to be treated him from the uh from the med, from the Amer- the american medical association said that most people that are treated recover completely from the ulcer disease within four to six weeks. So if we start to see these tour dates being announced in the next couple of weeks or next couple of months, and they are in October, that's a very different story than if he reschedules them and they're in February, March, and April. Of course, it depends on the availability of these venues because now he has to contend with potentially playing in venues that have hockey teams, especially in in Edmonton and Winnipeg and and Calgary um, and Toronto. But most of the time, though, 
I would say, you know, maybe until the end of the year, he's going to take some time off and then be back at it in February or March. Is this a reoccurring issue for him? No. In fact, unless that he has had this before and kept it super private, this is the first time that we have heard that Bruce Springsteen is human, maybe (laughs) in the last couple of years. Um, He came out when he did a book with Obama where they transcribed the conversations that they had based on their podcast that they did together. Bruce was very, um, Bruce was very open in the fact that he suffered from depression. He suffered from a lot of mental health issues in the last couple of years and was in treatment for that too, which kind of led to a lot of artists applauding him and rightfully so for talking about these issues that Normally, artists don't talk about when it comes to the actual physical health, though, he's never really revealed a whole lot, except for maybe a couple of years afterwards. Um, So this is the first time that he's actually come out and said, I need to start canceling shows because of what I have right this very moment. So how does this affect uh, uh, his tour? Because I guess as they started going back post COVID, he was going to be out for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. He had over a hundred dates on the schedule. And, you know, like you said at the top, he's 74 years old. Um, You know, there's other artists that are definitely up there that are still touring, including our very own Neil Young, who's 77 or Stevie Nicks just announced her tour and she's 75 and the Rolling Stones are set to announce their dates any moment now. And, you know, they're like in their eighties, two of them, Keith and Mick are, are 80. Ron Wood is a young pup at 76 but basically you know if you're if you're bruce springsteen you're kind of seeing this as a little bit of a roadblock um but certainly not one that he could be off the road for a number of months um i have a feeling that once he gets over this he's just going to be back on the road with the e street band uh as if nothing happened you gotta wonder what life is like uh being a rock star uh when you're in your form but what's it like when you're in your 70s or pushing 80 i mean you know uh, backstage looks a little differently now yeah you got to start carrying hearing aid batteries too uh, and that's no joke i mean you know bob mccartney it came out where's a hearing aid during these off yeah. time when he's not on stage um you know you you take things a little bit slower maybe you're not doing five nights or six nights in a row like taylor swift maybe you're doing two nights in a row and then you're off for two days um the who came out last year with Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. And they said that they were actually having problems getting health insurance um, Mm. for not just them, but all of the members of the band, because they were getting up there in age as well. And the sheer amount of people that the orchestra has. So when you're getting older, things become more expensive. Maybe instead of, doctors that give you you know prescriptions under the table for certain drugs that kept you up at night and then down during the day so you can sleep um you've got doctors that are treating you for ulcers and you know pain and ailments because these things start to hurt a little bit more and they last a little bit longer you know these uh, you know I, i i can kind of speak for experience at 53 which i'm at right now but those hangovers are lasting three days now they're not lasting four hours anymore oh you puppy uh i could just picture a dressing room with all these walkers outside you know it's a completely different backstage moment now eric elper with us music publicist and commentator eric as always thanks so much for the time be well thank you so much for having me we'll talk soon 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The X poll. CHML, uh, CHML X poll question of the day. I guess that's how you said. Uh, should Hamilton's LRT be operated publicly or privately? Uh, go to Twitter or X and uh, cast your ballot. Uh, we would love to hear from you. And that is the question we're going to be asking Marvin Ryder. Uh, picking up on the poll question of the day, the debate about whether LRT should be privately or publicly managed. Uh, council has discussed this behind closed doors and uh, are cons- uh, consulting a labor relations analysis are going to hold a labor relations analysis into various models to see what would be best. Uh, the ATU local 107 president, Eric Tuck, says there is language, clear language in the collective agreement that speaks to their rights to operate that LRT service uh, along the 14-kilometer line. Metrolinx uh, has said that they're working to determine the responsibilities around operation and maintenance, and the province makes the final decision. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is here now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well i am well glad to be with this seems to be a big debate um maybe not necessarily with those that want to ride it but certainly those that want to operate it what is the most effective efficient cost effective way to do this is is there is it that clear at this point no it's not but if you don't mind i'd like to start just in a different place if i can so uh the lrt is at this point a 3.4 billion dollar project jointly funded, jointly funded by the province of Ontario and the federal government. The money does not come to the city of Hamilton. $3.4 billion is given to Metrolinx, and Metrolinx is the company that is charged with building the LRT and then subcontracting all the infrastructure underneath that has to be replaced. So in a way, we've got the cart well in front of the horse. We don't have an LRT. We have nothing for anyone to run. And until it's built, that's not going to happen. Now, the question then becomes, once it is built, what happens? And uh, certainly at this point, Metrolinx has not said, as soon as it's built, we're going to hand the keys over to the city of Hamilton, and this is all yours, lock, stock, and barrel. They could do that, for instance, by having a, a legal agreement for a dollar or two dollars, we'll swap you and now you own it. And if, if it's owned by the city of Hamilton, then the union is absolutely right. Any transit properties owned by the city of Hamilton have to be operated by that union. But Metrolinx instead could say, no, we're going to continue to own this and run it beneficially for the people of Hamilton. And therefore, that contract that the union has with the city of Hamilton has nothing to play here. There is Hmm. no value. They don't have the contract with Metrolinx. Now, to get to your question, where does it make more sense? Well, there are pros and cons on both sides. So the theory of a private sector group is maybe, maybe they could operate it more cheaply. Uh, you would give them a fixed price, let's say, and then they would hire who they need to hire to make it happen. If you felt that, say, the benefit packages or the the pension plans were too rich among the transit workers, then you might save some money. But there's no clear sense that private is better. Uh, In other cities in Ontario where Metrolinx has operated them, uh, they have gone with private people, and those systems have not necessarily run any more better than the public system has. So not sure we can answer the question which is better. It's just what is legally possible. So what in the at the end of the day, uh, it says that the province will make the final decision. Uh, what criteria will they base that on? Uh, good question. And I don't know because uh, it does appear like they treat 
each transit property differently. Now, because Metrolinx came into existence, and this is a relatively new beastie, uh, as people began to realize that you don't operate any one uh, transit system in isolation. In other words, people ride Hamilton Transit, but they also want to get to Burlington, Oakville, Mississauga, et cetera. Metrolinx came along and said, let's look at cross-boundary transit. Let's come up with a system that links all the corners as opposed to each city just does the best for their own citizens. So uh, to date, generally speaking, the province has decided that these kind of uh, properties that they build remain the property of Metrolinx. They are not given to the municipality to run. Now, that doesn't mean that's, that's set in stone and absolutely certain. But on balance, that was their decision. This is such an important piece of regional infrastructure that we're going to keep it in the hands of a regional player and not necessarily give it to the city of Hamilton. But ultimately, that's got to be decided, and we don't know which way that's going to go. Why is the city uh, uh, analyzing this if at the end, um, if at the end the province decides either way which way it goes, and since it's Metrolinks that are basically paying for it all, ultimately... Um, um, how, how does the how does the HSR justify being a part of it if if they don't? Well, to your question, uh, we have uh, the, the current uh, transit union has a contract that is about to expire in October, and so if they are being told that they don't have guarantees to run this, then one of the things they're going to want in the new contract is additional language that guarantees them this right. Even though, as I've said to you, I don't think that's an automatic thing if it's not owned by the city of Hamilton. So with this contract coming up, and it's not just going to be about economic issues, in other words, how much are we paid and what goes into the pension fund, I think the city of Hamilton does have to study it to understand what their options are, what can they negotiate on, and what is off the table. Now, whether the union will agree with that or whether that will trigger a strike, anything is possible at this point. And then you throw in Metrolinks. They're not sure what they want to do on a project that we haven't put the shovel in the ground yet. Yeah. may not be done for another four, five, six years. It's just an interesting dance that's going on at this point. And I think you uh, use the right word there with dance, uh, because really, at this point, it's too early to to get to the bottom of any of it. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at Group School of Business, McMaster University. Although, Marvin, I guess it's always good to have your T's crossed and your I's dotted in case. Just in case. And that's certainly what the union's trying to do at this point. Thank you, Marvin. Have a great day. Thank you. It's Hamilton Today, 900 CHML in Hamilton. We're coming back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Friday's joint session was about what Canada stands for, about our steadfast support of Ukraine's fight against Putin's brutality, lies, and violence, It was a moment to celebrate and acknowledge the sacrifices of Ukrainians as they fight for their democracy, their freedom, their language and culture, and for peace. This is the side Canada was on in World War II, and this is the side we are on today. Well, thank you for that history lesson, but how come you didn't get the one about the Nazi in the the gallery? Uh, okay, great little speech there, but at the end, you should stand up and say, and now as prime minister, I take full responsibility for what happened. Uh, our speaker uh, obviously made a misstep, and uh, we didn't catch it. 
and we promise we won't do that. I promise I won't let that happen again. It's very simple. Doug Ford made a beautiful apology when he ate the crow regarding the green belt. Why can't our prime minister do that? Why can't Justin Trudeau just apologize without including me or anybody else that had nothing to do with it? And on that note, as Joe Warmington wrote a columnist for the Toronto Sun a couple of days ago, a monument to the SS 14th Waffen Division, which this person was a part of, still stands in an Oakville graveyard, and recent events have brought attention back to it and other such memorials in Canada. If we're taking down statues of John A. Macdonald and Edgar Ryerson, how can we have these still standing? And again... Should the apology come from a more sincere leader than blaming the rest of us for this terrible mistake? Joe Warmington with us now from the Toronto Sun. Joe, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, it's been a busy week. I mean, it always is, but this week seems really heavy. And, you know, I, not every day you have a Nazi in the House of Commons. So, you know, and, but you're right. I went over to that. I heard about it before, but I never paid much attention to that statue that's in the um, the Ukrainian cemetery in uh, Oakville. But, um, you know, I went over to look at it, and it just, I don't know, it makes you sick to your stomach when you see it there. It's kind of, it, it, it's kind of, it doesn't have a swastika, but it, ha- it just has this feeling of evil coming off it. And, uh, mm. you know, I know that there's been a lot of controversy about it in Oakville. Obviously, Mayor Rob Burton has already indicated that, you know, if he had his power, he, he had the power, he'd take it down. Chief of Halton Police, Steve Tanner, has said it shouldn't be up there, and they've had vandalize. Nobody should vandalize, and it's not not your, you know, anyone wants to take action, uh, you know, go through the right channels. But you know, in light of the fact that one of these Nazis, uh, you know, that served with the Nazi unit, was in the House of Commons, it just shows. This shows, uh, and I think that's why you called me, that this isn't isolated. There, there are people that. You know, think that this is okay, and I'll tell you how why it happened quickly. And that's in 1950, when they let in the 2000, in between 50 and 52 or so, 2,000 of these Ukrainian men uh, were cleared. Or some of them went to England first, and the way they looked at it was that they were being absolved of the war crimes. Yeah. Not that they necessarily had had you know participated, but they were connected to it through these, this unit, which had murdered a lot of people. That was. SS Waffen unit, uh, which answered to Himmler, whose sole responsibility was to exterminate Jews and Poles and Slovaks and, you know, homosexuals and mentally all of that. And so they, I think they just thought that they were given a bit of a mulligan. Of course, it didn't work like that. The Nazi hunters were out there and people took the uh, edict that, you know, this must never happen again. And if you're part of it, you don't get to establish this following orders. And that, this was a bit of a loophole on that, and that's why we're yeah. here. Yeah. And this 98-year-old guy went into the parliament. It, it, you bring up an interesting point here, though, is that if, if we're, and again, as you have said, I don't believe in tearing things down. I believe in putting another one up and telling the other side of the story if you're going to do that sort of thing. Um, but you brought up a valid point. How do you bring down statues of John A. Macdonald and have stuff like this standing up there? It just doesn't make well, sense. Good. Yeah, this is, it's it's ludicrous. And, you know, the, the, the narrative that Sir Johnny McDonald, that somehow, you know, all these uh, bodies were underneath residential schools and all these things, it would have been better to wait and see if that was accurate. And, of course, in the first, uh, you know, 
few that they've looked at, it isn't accurate. But but nonetheless, I mean, it's hard to go through and look back and through history, you know, 180, 200 years ago or whatever, and say, well, this is how it should. You don't even know what's right and wrong. Uh, so so it is foolish, but it's all politics, all this stuff. But when it comes to the Holocaust, it, it, we're all supposed to be together on it. I, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I, I hear your point on the prime minister. I mean, look, at, you know, he's sitting there having a horrible week. Uh, he survives everything. I mean, this guy... I mean, I never thought that, you know, he's had the black face and grope gate and, you know, uh, obviously the, the Chinese spy thing and, and then the India thing and that. So now the, but I never would have thought that he'd be connected yeah. to having a Nazi. Anyway, he's a, he's a master politician. Uh, it's, it's pretty concerning, though, that, that you know, it, it's interesting to watch, isn't it? That, you know, they don't take some things. Some things are so serious. Like they can point, Prime Minister yesterday, he looked across at Leslie Lewis, who was a member from Haldeman, and uh, she's a, a, a black woman. And, you know, he so much as called her racist for having, you know, I, I guess a sit down with uh, this Christine Anderson, who's an elected member of the European Union, this anti-Nazi. Uh, they just call her a Nazi. She's not. I talked, I interviewed her. But Leslie Lewis just hitched a ride with another MP, stopped in there popped in and then he looks right at her and says you know he said something to uh pierre Pauli of like a senior member of your team and he looked at her i talked to her today about it and and he does things like that when yeah. he's the guy that wore blackface yeah. he just <laughs> point at you and say you're you're racist i don't know anybody that's more blackface in my whole life i none of my friends have no my you know, exactly i know this on that it is uh, it's it, it's very bizarre, and and you know there's an announcement that there's going to be a committee struck to study how you keep uh, a Nazis out of the gallery, and and really it's it, it's just another committee to cover up another government screw up of some sort. Um, you know maybe David maybe David Johnston should head this. I mean it, it's just very bizarre that people keep supporting him within that party as he keeps asking everyone else to fall on the sword. He, he's in big trouble in many ways. But look, in the last few weeks, I mean, obviously he's lost, you know, the some. I'm sure some of the Indian vote and some of the Muslim vote with that business of the school uh, protest, you know, and he's got, so, so you know, he's messing around with his base. And so he's got real problems here. I, I don't understand it. It's almost like he's got a collision course mm. with everybody, you know. And, and I, you know, I, I think that um, sometimes I, like we're very political in our jobs that we have to be, but you know, from a human point of view, his marriage failed. Um, you know, he had some trouble. Uh, he's, he's he's having a tough time in there, and yet you're right. Nobody can say to look at. You know why? Maybe, maybe you're having such a tough time. Maybe it's time we re, you know, redo it. If we did our jobs as badly as he does his job, or at least yeah. with the results, if the results weren't there, like, you know, this is not all his fault. But there's all right. You've, you've done another interesting calming, uh, column today, which I want to mention. Homeless enjoy fancy food as Anthony Rhoda's garden party is canceled. The lavish party was scrapped after the Speaker of the House resigned Tuesday for his shameful role in inviting a Nazi into the House of Commons. So he had planned, or there was supposed to be a, a garden party that night. Obviously, it was scrapped. And tell everybody about your story and where the food oh, went. I, I wonder why he was hesitating, Anthony Rhoda. Uh, because he should have offered the resignation the first day. And I think it's because of this party he had planned. I didn't know about this thing called the farm. It's uh, it's called Kingsmere. It was actually owned originally by uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King, who was prime minister back in the 40s. And he left it in his will for Canada. 
and a piece of it is for where this it was supposed to be for the prime minister, but that Harrington Lake happened, and and so this is now where the speaker lives. And the party, if you have the column in front of you, can you? See I got it. it. I'm looking read, at it. Yeah. Read out, read out the menu, and then I'll tell what 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 ended up happening with that with that. Uh, hang on a sec. I've got the invitation. I don't have the menu. I've got uh, the invitation, which says extending a warm invitation for to all MPs and members of the press gallery to a garden party at the farm Tuesday, September 26, 6 let to me, 9. Let me, let me give it a shot on the menu just on my memory. Um, there's 100 uh, lamb meatballs. There's uh, another 100 seared uh, scallops. Yeah, yes. yeah, I've got it. Yeah, it's a uh, hundred, a hundred seared, a hundred seared crusted scallops, two thousand poached shrimp, two hundred small lamb meatballs, ten kilograms of pulled beef, uh, two hundred pieces of fried chicken, uh, one hundred buns, and seven hundred oysters. So they cancel the thing. They bring it to the Ottawa Mission for the homeless, and 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 somehow they absolve themselves. And that's a good story. But let me tell you what. What I think is, when I see that, and that's what I wrote, is, you know, it's like the scraps from these guys who didn't have their party. Let's throw them down to the homeless that are starving <laughs> and, you know, that have to go to a, a you know, a soup kitchen or whatever. And, and it, but, like, why are we paying for these people? We can't afford groceries ourselves. We can't afford our insurance. We can't afford our mortgages that have all, our rates are going up. People that are, our renters are renting, like, a, you know, a little bit of a shoebox for two thousand dollars a month. All these days, and these guys in Ottawa are living like like large and lavish. <laughs> and you know, it it just it, it it just boggles the mind. They have no connection to the average person. And I think this story is I don't know how it's going to do, uh, but I I originally got the you know somebody sent a lot of media uh, were invited to this. By the way, I wasn't, but but. Uh, you know, I talked to Lesa Lewis. That's why I was talking to her. It was about that. I asked her if she, uh, you know, was considering going to this party. She said, no, absolutely not. And I talked to another MP, didn't want to be dragged into it because they mm. didn't want to kick Anthony Rota while he's down because he's, everyone yeah. likes Anthony Yeah, Rota. Like, yeah. Like, I, I, think, I don't think Anthony Rota meant, meant to do this at all. I think it was, no. no, I think no, it was focused on Zelensky that they, yep. they didn't know who was in the gallery and, Somebody, somebody messed up. But this, this party with all this food, uh, it really does tell you what's wrong. Joe Warmington's latest in the sun. Homeless enjoy fancy food as Anthony Rota's garden party is canceled and it ends up uh, going to a shelter. Joe, as always, thanks for the time. Keep up the great work. Be well. Thanks, Scott. How do we know what to believe moving forward uh, when it comes to certain information coming out in regard to the economy? Uh, how do you read all of this? Because we know, you know, bad news sells better than good. Uh, you know, if we get through the next year, we are good, uh, was one statement I heard. And then another, we may not need another rate hike, but it looks like rates will stay higher for a long period of time. What does this all mean? Eric Cam with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. And here now, Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, it's no better week to be Jewish in Canada, my friend. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I shouldn't have laughed there. But uh, with all that's happening in the world, how does that uh, alter the economy? Does it or does it just do its own thing? Or does the mood of the world change economics? You know, it's funny you say that. The mood of everywhere, the world, your city, your province, 
even your corner store, everything has an effect on the economy because everything affects expectations. Now, honestly, this is not going to have um, a driving effect on the economy. This is more a pretty black eye, if anything else. But you mentioned good news and bad news, and someone's saying, well, let's talk about the good news. The problem is right now, Scott, is there really isn't a lot of good news. And usually you and I discuss the demand side of the economy, right? Since we started these um, chats, we talk about consumption and investment and government spending and interest rates and inflation rates. But now we get word from the government that the supply side of the economy, the bottom is falling out of it. And what do we mean by that? It means that we have really serious declining productivity now that's mm. brought us back to about our 2016 levels. So productivity or loosely defined output per hour worked has really fallen. So I don't want to turn this into a lecture, but what does it mean? It means that wage gains in the economy are not happening because people are getting more productive. Output per hour has actually been in a bit of a free fall. It means that rising labor costs do nothing other than one, you reduce headcount, you reduce your labor to meet your profits, or you further tighten monetary policy, and then we're back to where this all began. And so the bottom line right now is that you and I look like geniuses because we said about three months ago, as long as the labor market is okay, we're okay. Well, if productivity is declining, the labor market is not okay, Scott. And I think we're in for some seriously rough waters in the months to come. They're talking about the unemployment rate going up on that note. The unemployment rate is going to go up. If productivity is falling and interest rates are rising, and you can't say, well, they've stopped rising because we haven't had the full effect of those rate rises yet. I, I hate to say it, but 80% of Canada's mortgages are going to come due in the next two to three years. Now, wait till that happens and you want to see the effect of inflation on the economy. So right now, uh, going back to the supply side, here's the problem. We've been substituting labor for capital. And so what, what does that mean? It means that the only reason that we're growing at all in our numbers is because of immigration. Now, I'm not against immigration. As a side note, no Jewish person can be against immigration because that's how we all got here. Mm -hmm. But it means that immigration is a growth strategy. And as a growth strategy, immigration is terrible. Uh, that, we've heard that. that uh, the, pro the, uh, uh, the prime minister's growth strategy was to increase the population, increase the size of the public service, which, you know, considering housing and health care, just seems to be meaningless. Let me ask you this question, Eric. How does productivity fall? Well, in simple terms, more labor produced less per hour. And that's what's going on right now. It's just that simple. And so when you have more people producing less physical goods and services per hour, it takes all of our, any statistic that we quote as being per capita means it's the statistic divided by the number of people or mm -hmm. by the productivity. It means that those statistics are all falling. And so that's why right now, if you take a picture of the economy, you see so many of our economic indicators are falling. It's because in simple math terms, it's a denominator, and the only thing going up is the denominator. A few seconds left. The whole India thing, speaking of the Prime Minister's follies, uh, we talked about this last week a lot. Uh, it's been uh, obviously pushed to the back burner with the situation uh, regarding Zelensky and such and the Nazi in the gallery. Uh, that being said, the trade deal, where is all that now? That's a mess, and it's a mess for two reasons. Number one, 
Because what if we do lose our 10th biggest trading partner? Now, we're not going to lose them, but this might negatively affect it. What I'm more worried about as an economist is tourism. What if our friends from India decide that they can spend their money elsewhere so they don't come to Ontario, they don't stay in our hotels, eat in our restaurants, and go to our baseball games? What happens then? So it's really a double whammy, and I worry about that. Uh, not as, again, not as much on the trade side because there'll always be international trade. But what if Indian people, people of Indian descent, just decide mm. we can go elsewhere than Ontario? Eric Cam with us, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, always insightful. Thanks for the time. Be well. It's always an honor. Stay healthy. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation say it is voted in favor of a binding arbitration pro- uh, process. We talked about this a few weeks ago, meaning that there will be no strikes or lockouts uh, during these negotiations. So we are free. It looks like the members voted about 78% in favor of this bargaining proposal. To talk more about it, Stephen Lecce is with us, Minister of Education, Province of Ontario. And he is here now. Stephen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good to be back. Thanks so much. Stephen, I can't remember a time in my life, and I'm 60, when a deal moves forward with as less commotion and fanfare than this. We've heard very little about it, very little trash talk, very little bashing. And I must admit, it's incredibly refreshing. How did you, how did you get here? Well, I mean, I got to say, this has always been about kids. And I think if we put ourselves in the shoes of parents, who have been through hell, so much difficulty, so much pressure on their lives, uh, financially, pandemic, you name it, they've been bearing so much of the brunt of the last few years. We owe it to the people of this province to put them first. So yeah, it's historically more ruckus, uh, you know, a lot of finger pointing and fighting, but at the end of the day, we want results. And the metric of our success are children better off. Are they in school? And we put, we came together, the credit of all the parties, and we put these kids first, and that is a great legacy. We can demonstrate to the future governments and future union leaders that we can come together in the interests of children. They deserve that stability. I'm proud that a high school child started last September. For any of you folks out there with a child in an, in an English public high school, your child started last September, they're going to graduate without the threat of disruption or strike, provincially, yeah. locally or provincially. They are guaranteed peace. And that is an amazing achievement. And I'm just, I cannot tell you how excited I am to do this now for every child in Ontario. It really is a, quite an achievement. And kudos to you and the heads of the union for making it all happen. Obviously, it takes two to tango here. Yep. Uh, initially, I remember you came on and you introduced this and all seemed to be good. And then the, the next day, the union came out and said, no, 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 we're not doing this. And now 78% voting in favor of this. What changed? I think, you know, I think the people in the unions fundamentally don't always, uh, uh, you know, there sometimes could be disconnects from the union leadership, but it's possible. I mean, the truth is most people, most of the members just want to work. I think they just want to do what they signed up for, which is educate kids. Uh, the second thing is, I think they're reading the tea leaves. They see out there that, you know, many people are struggling. They're working harder than ever. Um, and that this is something that would be, uh, the concept of a strike would be overwhelmingly opposed by people. And I think they also sense the, pop, the, pop, the public out there thought that we proposed, right, keep negotiating to a fixed date and then everything outstanding goes to binding interest arbitration was sensible, was fair, 
fundamentally fair. I mean, we this is how we render decisions and uh, dispute resolution for nurses, for doctors, for transit workers. So if we could do it for all of them, why couldn't we do it here? And I think they understood that reality. They sort of uh, sort of felt the you know the energy in the province where a lot of people were saying, "Take this deal and keep my kids in school." So part of it is probably public pressure, but the bottom line is whatever motivated them, we were able to deliver something special, which is peace. And we negotiated from a position of strength. We took the position that kids need to be in school. We've added more resources. We're hiring 2,000 additional members of their teachers this year. We're adding more funding, like literally nearly $700 million. So we're demonstrating good faith towards the supports, the investments. We're going back to basics. And we came up with a sensible strategy to to navigate through what is always difficult negotiations with every teacher union every few years in Ontario. And I felt like I owe it to families to do everything humanly possible to keep these kids in school. And that's what we've done. And that's a big outcome. But I will say, Scott, the problem is that we're not, it isn't the final union negotiation. It's one of many. And there's Catholic kids yeah. that don't have that predictability, kids in our French system, and kids within our public English elementary system. And I insist that every child has that stability. So if it's good enough for a public English high school union, it begs the question, how is this unacceptable to a public English elementary teacher union? Well, and I'm referring to EDFO. So I'm hoping that they will come to their senses, read the room, and work with us. Because we did it with OSS. We were able to work together. We put these kids first. We came up with a sensible plan. And we're going to keep negotiating, by the way, for the next until October 27th. Mm-hmm. So I look. I as much as you know, I do believe there's a path with all those uh, remaining out unions. I'm just sort of saying today, like enough of the obstruction, enough of the delay. Get on with it. We've got a deal. Eight and ten members said yes to this. That's an overwhelming mandate by any measurement. And I just want to get this done, not because of you know I'm in a hurry. It's because parents want that certainty. They deserve it. And therefore, because of that, I'm pushing the system to get it done. And I just think we can. Um, we really can. And I'm. Uh, Confident we will. All right. EQAO released uh, their assessment data from this past year, 22-23. I understand it's right. flat or going up. Your thoughts here? Yeah, it's, 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 it means the plan we put in place is working. I mean, they're modest gains across the board, 2 to 5% in math. You know, we've seen a 2% increase in our graduation rate when you compare us to the Liberals in 2018 under Kathleen Wynne. We're up to 89%, nearly 9 in 10 kids are graduating on the literacy test. We've had a 4% increase since uh, 2018 and a 3% increase year over year. So my point to you is, look, we're moving in the right direction. It's incremental, but it means stable schools, kids in school for the full year without interruption with the sports and extracurriculars and clubs and all that, plus the additional new investments in reading, writing, and math and the back-to-basics priority and the new accountability on the school boards, I actually believe it's yielding some results, and it's moving us in the right place. I, I, I first to acknowledge we have a lot of work to do, but this is the directionally we're on the right track, and it actually makes my earlier point, which is now is not the time to create any anxiety or threat of a strike. Now is the time to let these kids stay in school to harness the goodwill and the investments within our school system to allow these numbers to rise even more next year and the year after. So. I want to keep going, but I'll tell you, the back to basics focus, it's not just a a hashtag. That is the number one priority of my ministry today. I'm absolutely fired up to make sure our school boards are focused on academic achievements, on foundational skills. They need to be highly skilled, confident, confident in the competencies that are actually going to help these kids succeed. Literacy, math, 
STEM education. This is where the future is. That's where the economy is at. And so we're really realigning and refocusing the priorities of school boards on what matters most to parents. And that's the basics. And I'm really excited about that because I actually think it's working. Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation says it has voted in favor of a binding arbitra- uh, arbitration process, meaning no strikes or lockouts during these negotiations, uh, free for a few years. Uh, Stephen Lecce with us, Minister of Education for the province of Ontario. Good luck with the rest, Stephen. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you so much. Have a good night. We know the situation about President Zelensky, Ukraine, uh, visiting the House of Commons, and then, of course, uh, everybody pays tribute to a Nazi in the gallery, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Now, uh, opposition, the Conservatives, pushing for a House of Commons committee to find out what the heck happened and how we got into this international embarrassment. How many committees do we have going right now ongoing to study screw ups that have happened in the government it's and now is not maybe we could get david johnston to to head this would that help um how do we move forward from all of this what is the next step let's bring in jean bieb tellier professor school of political studies university of ottawa and here now jean bieb thank you for the time hope you're well i'm well thank you very much so your thoughts on what has transpired over the last few days and the prime minister's response what are your thoughts uh, yes, it's a debate between uh, is it on entirely the responsibility or the fault of Anthony Rota, or was the government involved also in that uh, in that decision? And I think it lies only within the responsibility of the House of the President, President of the House of Commons. I don't see I don't see how the Prime Minister could have been informed about his own decision. And what we are seeing now is that the Conservative tries to uh, keep momentum, uh, keep the discussion going on, trying to blame the government about that. Uh, and now, okay, so they have pushed that to a, a committee. And I agree with you, there's maybe too much work in committee going on to try to um, dig things that probably don't exist. And and I think it's more a fishing expedition for the moment because they want to have, I don't know, there's a huge long list of witnesses that they want to call. And uh, that's a sign for me that they don't really have a, 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 a real indication uh, who's responsible or, or, or what really ha- happened, unless, uh, except that, in my view, it's it's under the, the it was entirely the, the responsibility of uh, Anthony Ruta. Over and above whose official responsibility it was, this isn't what it wasn't a typical day in the House of Commons where some school bus full, filled with kids come in and, and fill the gallery. This was a highly sensitive, highly secure, highly international event with the president of a country who's at war and his country's under siege with Russia. Uh, are you surprised there aren't more checks and balances in place? I know it's not my job, it's his job, but at the end of the day, w- when you're looking after all of this, uh, considering where the government is in other issues regarding information that just never got to the right person, whether it's the Paul Bernardo affair, whether it's international, or sorry, uh, Chinese Communist Party election interference. It's, it seems that the left hand just has no idea what the right hand is doing. This seems to be a common uh, occurrence for this government. Should there have been some checks and balances considering the enormity of this event? I think so, but then again, each time that you want to put some checks and balance, I think a, a, a an exceptional event will nonetheless occur because you cannot think forwardly about everything. You cannot anticipate 
everything that will happen. And so you try to mitigate or minimize the, the, the risk. You do as much as possible. And what was done at the House of Commons was physical security checks, or you cannot enter parliament uh, as you please. And this was a change uh, a few years ago, before in the 1970s, 80s, you could enter parliament without, without a security mm-hmm. check. And so things have evolved. But now what we are asking is more a background, uh, not just physical, but our overall background uh, and maybe everything that you have said on social media and, and every job that you had. And so, uh, and so where the list end? And so I don't know that you could be foolproof and you have to work with the unexpected up to a point. Now I'm very concerned about what has happened to this week in the house, last week in the house. And for me, this is more a, a question of, General information, general education. Uh, how come no one thought that if you were fighting against the, the Russian during World War II, you were with the German? And so for me, it's like this is the basic of history knowledge, historical knowledge that every Canadian should have. And so are you referring um, to are you referring to the speaker with this or everybody in the uh, house? Everybody in the house, maybe not uh, MPs because they were caught into the moment and they maybe not. Yeah, John, with, with all due respect, I mean, if you're standing there and you're caught up in the moment, what are you going to stand up? What are you going to do in, in the gallery or in the in, in the house? You're going to stand up and go, well, wait a sec. That's not right, because that's not the history here. We didn't fight with them. They were fighting. Like, who's going to do that? It should have been the staff of the president of the House exactly. of Commons. Uh, yes, it's not the yeah. MP because, as I said, they were caught in the in the to the moment. But how come nobody that thought that it would be a good idea to invite this guest and knowing his past, so he has fought World War Two? Okay, so on which side were you? And how come nobody thought of asking if you thought World War Two in Ukraine? Uh, it may be a bit more complex than yeah, us yeah. Canadian, and and that's the right question. And I think that uh, we are not that knowledgeable about our past, our history, a veteran of Wait a sec, Jean-Viev, again, is it, is, it, is, it, is it accurate to be blaming everybody when we have, a, you know, just simply another example of staff not informing people what is going on? Like, there's okay. been lots of examples of this where, where politicians blame the staff for information not getting to them or, or to this. To, at what point do the bosses take control of the staff? Uh, at this point where Anthony Rota resigned. And so we have a ministerial responsibility or, or um, leader's responsibility. And to the point, you must take full responsibility of not having the work done by, by your staff. But at the same time, your staff did not do its work. And so I, I question also, I, I don't blame only Anthony Rota. I also blame, I think, or at least we should question the public servant uh, that were there to help their boss there to help uh, Mr. Rota and did not do their job. And, and I'm sure that they feel miserable for the moment at not at the present time because they saw that their boss resigned. But nonetheless, uh, I don't think that we fully understand all the issue. And so we were misinformed. Now, I think you raise another issue is about how people are speaking to each other. And that's another problem. And I agree with you. We tend to work in silo. In silo. And so, uh, as you said, what the right hand is doing, the left hand doesn't know. 
And uh, there is this uh, notion of security here in Canada. And so our secret service don't want to really share what they have. And so we should we do things differently. Now we will have a commission. So we'll see what happened with that. And I think it's a right a step in the right direction. But for this specific case with, uh, with what we saw at the House of Commons, it's more about understanding uh, our history, understanding the issue. And I think that we don't have any more the skills that, I think we used to have uh, in the past years, uh, but uh, it seems to me that it's disappearing. And so I, I'm kind of concerned about that. You are, uh, there is, it's often, the issue are often uh, right or wrong, yes or no, black or white. And so we don't anymore think more thoroughly and, and try to make the nuance that are necessary when we're talking about those issues. If we all agree that this should have never happened and this is a complete international embarrassment, how can we not all agree that it needs to be fixed and that um, and we need to get to the bottom of it? Yes, well, I think the first thing is to have the Prime Minister apologize, not be, just on behalf of parliamentarian, as he did, but on behalf of all Canadians. And that all, all collectively, we should recognize that uh, uh, this, this this was uh, a, a terrible mistake uh, that should never happen again. And then to going forward, try to figure, figure out how to fix it. But as I said before, uh, you cannot fix everything because you cannot anticipate everything. Who would have guessed, I don't know, a week ago that we would have a former Nazi soldier uh, recognized in the House of Commons? I mean, it was difficult to expect. Uh, and I think other instances will will occur. Uh, now let's try to to minimize that or to mitigate that uh, by by having a better understanding, better com uh, information share. Uh, but at the end, uh, it's it's good to have somebody responsible and somebody that paid the cost of uh, not taking full uh, responsibility or or assuming. Uh, the, 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 the problem that we have. Seen. Let me ask you this, Jean-Bierre. If, if the prime minister is in no way responsible, why did he not speak about it for three days and let his MPs waffle in the House with it, including saying statements like it should be erased from the record? Yeah, so which was not a good idea. Um, no, this, well, you know, this government, I've, and I think we did, did discuss you and I often about those uh, crises that the liberal government did face over the year. And this is a government that is very slow to react. And I think that our prime minister don't, don't have the political flair to know uh, rapidly how to react, how to behave and what to say in crisis moment. And so we have a government that is very risk uh, adverse, uh, very cautious, want to listen to many sides and think about. There is also a political strategy that goes on also. And so because of that, we always have this our prime minister that waits and, and, and it takes days, if not weeks or months before before making a, a statement that seems obvious for all of us. Uh, not calling a commission for foreign interference uh, months before. Everybody knew that this was mm. to come. Uh, only uh, the prime minister was not seeing it, I think. Uh, and so we have a, a, a government that is very uh, slow to react. And, and risk adverse is also in the public servant. And so public servant don't want to cause any problem for their own government. But some, and so they will try, try to advise mm. uh, him. Uh, but sometimes it takes too much time, and so that's why that's why we saw the, that silence for 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 days before he he took uh, he say something. Jean-Bierre Tellier with us, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and the ongoing fallout of the situation with President Zelensky in the House. Jean-Bierre, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
You too. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This time from Danny for Kathleen. The dump is nothing but bad stuff inside. It's leaching and smell will never go away. The people who to blame are those that give the permits and the extension. The stuff in that pit is worse than Randall Reef. Every time it rains, more and more toxic wastewater will drain away. Industrial waste and who knows whatever goes into that landfill. Danny. Keep right except to pass. 